Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? of Sound Opinions, and this week we're revisiting our 50th anniversary discussion of Carol King's masterpiece, Tapestry. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Let's dive in. It's time to do a deep dive into Carol King's Tapestry, a classic album dissection. Yes. 50th anniversary of this 1971 album that still is being handed down generation to generation. You gotta listen to this record because it was a life-changing one in 1971 and it's still a life-changing one now for people who are coming to it for the first time. We're gonna dive into why that's true. Uh, At the center of it all, obviously, Carol King. Born Carol Klein in New York in 1942 to a working class family. She grew up in Brooklyn. She was an advanced student, apparently very precocious, very talented, something of a prodigy. Mm. You know, perfect pitch as a toddler. Yeah. You know, playing piano as a kid. In the 50s, she went to a Brooklyn High School, James Madison, where she formed her first band, the Cosines. Uh, changed her name from Carol Klein to Carol King at that point. Mm. Uh, she started writing songs with a guy named Paul Simon. You ever heard of him? Paul Simon. Yeah, back at yeah. uh, $25 a session. They, it's an auspicious debut. Yeah, started writing songs with him. Nothing, nothing they wrote together at that time really popped. But she started, like, I, I like this. I can do this. Mm-hmm. When she went to Queens College, she was an advanced student, remember, that's where she met Jerry Goffin, the guy who was going to become her songwriting partner. They ended up getting married in 1959 when Carol was only 17. She was already pregnant with uh, her first daughter, those, Louise. Those, those pictures of the pregnant Carol, yeah. a teenager, uh, at the grand piano with her husband uh, are amazing. You can find them on the net. I just find it so astonishing that she was able to accomplish so much at such a young age, given the fact that she was trying to raise a family and, and, and at the same time doing the songwriting on the side while her her husband was an assistant chemist and she was a secretary. They were working a day job just to pay yeah. the rent. So finally, things clicked with them as a songwriting team in 1960. The Shirelles' Will You Love Me Tomorrow was their song. It became a number one hit. the first hit by a black girl group in in American history, which is an amazing accomplishment. But it kind of also hints at the fact that these guys were writing soul songs. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't just sort of pop pablum. They were they were aiming a little deeper and a little higher in terms of what their perspective was. So you get a number one hit, you get to quit your day job and say, <laughs> let's give this a shot. Uh, they became a part of the so-called Brill Building era. The Brill Building itself was not the location where Carol King and Jerry Goffin were writing music. It was at another building uh, on Broadway. Well, it became a generic name right. for these songwriting factories. Right. The way Kleenex is a tissue, right? It, right. It, was, it was all Brill Building. And I think what we call here is the Brill Building sound. It was a songwriting factory. I mean, Carol was talking about the idea that they would be in a cubicle, a cubbyhole that was just big enough for a piano 
a, a, a piano bench and maybe an extra chair for the songwriting partner. And then ashtray. That was, that was important right. then, yeah. And they're cranking out songs, and right next door, somebody else was doing the same thing. So they're basically shoulder to shoulder with these songwriting giants, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who were guests on Sound Opinions years ago, Ellie Granich and Jeff Barry. Mm. Lieber and Stoller were there, Backrack and David, Burt Burns, Neil Diamond, mm. Doc Pomus. It was a cream of the crop. And then the guys like Don Kirshner stopping by the cubicle every day. I need a hit. What do yeah, you got yeah, for what me? You got? What you do got you got for me today? Yeah. So they're cranking out these songs. And Carol King and Jerry Goffin sort of split up the duties. You know, Goffin is writing the, the lyrics. Carol is writing the music. And she's inevitably the artist chosen to demonstrate the song. And people are going, these are already finished songs. I mean, it's like she's already creating art. She writes Chains, which uh, the Beatles end up covering. Uh, the Locomotion for their babysitter, Little Eva. I love that uh, song. Yeah. My little babysitter can do everything. It's easier to learn in your ABC. So come on, come on, do the locomotion with me. Take Good Care of My Baby for Bobby V. Take good care of my baby. Now don't you ever make her cry. Uh, I'm Into Something Good, which later became a hit for Herman's Hermits. One Fine Day by the Chiffons. Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees. Another Pleasant Valley Sunday. Here instead of Simple This was a chronicle of like, hey, we're moving out to the burbs. I really don't like it that much, Carol <laughs> says. I'm going to write this song yeah. about how sucky the suburbs are and give it to the Monkees. Uh, you make me feel like a natural woman. One of Aretha Franklin's signature songs, Going Back for Dusty Springfield and later The Birds covering that song as well. What a string of hits they had. Now, a, during, lot of, a lot of careers could end right there. Absolutely, and, and, and well could have. Talk about a part one of your career. It's interesting, Jim, that uh, Carol also, she was so talented that they were trying to you know, reframe her as a, a solo star in her own right, and she actually had a minor hit during this period, it might as well rain until September. And they were thinking, okay, something could, could percolate here, but uh, she, she eventually did not have any chart success beyond that song. So she sort of gave it up in 66. But then things started to change for her in the next couple of years, right? Well, Greg, the Goffin-King marriage was a troubled one, and, and I'm not talking gossip here. I think Carol King writes about it very uh, insightfully and movingly in A Natural Woman, her autobiography. There was the fact that uh, Jerry, her husband, began taking hallucinogenic drugs, and she was so disturbed by what he was doing. Uh, what's more, he had an affair outside the marriage, resulted in the birth of a daughter in 1964. Uh, they get divorced in 1968. Uh, the official reason is their lifestyle differences are irreconcilable. And Carol wants to leave New York in her rear view, and she moves to California. This is a point after the summer of love where lots of people are moving to the Golden West. You know, the difference going from Queens yeah. in January and the slush and the snow and the cold and the pace to Laurel Canyon. It's where she winds up. It, it, it's, it's just circumstance. She doesn't know any of the people who will become her friends. What a cast of characters that includes. James Taylor, 
young guy hasn't made much noise yet as a singer-songwriter, uh, Joni Mitchell, right, who came right, down, right. same thing, from Canada instead of from Queens, winds up in Laurel Canyon, and Tony Stern, a very talented songwriter who uh, makes Carol feel very much at home. Carol's got the two kids. She's got two daughters with right. Jerry. She's on her own as a young mother living on the other side of the country, but she begins to make friends and uh, gets back into writing songs. She forms a band called The City, and its members include Charles Larkey on bass and Danny Korchmar on guitar. She's doing vocals and piano. There is one album by The City, comes out in 1968, not long after she lands in California. It's called Now That Everything's Been Said. Clearly, there's a little bit of divorce and the end of a relationship, the start of a new era on her mind. doesn't really take off in large part because Carol King is reluctant to the sadness of Charles Larkey on bass and Danny Korchmar on guitar to, to play out live much. Yeah. Well, um, she's a mom, you know. She's a mom and she has, has, has responsibilities and she is more confident in her talents as a writer than she is as a band leader. Uh, but James Taylor convinces her, you can do this. Not only can you do this, you should do this. You should perform live. And Carol had, had a lot of reservations about the quality of her voice, about was she, you know, enough of a star presence, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and he helped her get over that. So the city kind of falls apart in 1969. And she's not done making music yet. She makes her debut album, Writer. That's what she considers mm-hmm. herself. Cause there is no easy way. For a, a relatively young label at that point, Ode. O-D-E, started by Lou Adler. These are all people living in Laurel Canyon, right? right? They're all neighbors. We talked last year about that great documentary, two-part documentary, Laurel Canyon. If you haven't caught it yet, you really should, because it it was one of those times and places where the nexus of creativity in the universe was there. Mm -hmm. This one, it had been a low-rent, run-down section of Los Angeles, uh, but beautiful, you know, because the sun's always out and there's Mm -hmm. nice yards. Writer doesn't really take off, makes a little bit of buzz, and then uh, it's time to make album number two. It did well enough that she's going to get a chance to make a second album. And Tapestry, from the interviews we've done, from everything I've read, from Carol's autobiography, A Natural Woman, it's not like everybody knew this was a masterpiece right away. But, you know, she had this set of songs. She was becoming more confident about delivering them herself. But this was the moment of confessional singer-songwriter. If you're thinking about Neil Young at that period, Joni Mitchell certainly, even Sweet Baby James, right? And and she's going to come to personify the singer-songwriter. Yeah, and you're right. It wasn't really a thing at that point. I mean, you know, it was still about rock stars and about being larger than life. And here was this woman who wanted to be herself. And But I also think she learned a lot in her life. She's 28 years old around this time. And, you know, she's been through a lot. She's been, you know, she's a young mom. She's been through a divorce. She's had a career that sort of start, started and stopped and then started again. Um, you know, she's, she's experienced. 
She's done some a living. lot. Done some and I think she felt comfortable with herself at that point. So she starts kind of performing these songs in her living room with a small group of musicians, including people like Danny Korchmar. And the producer, Lou Adler, says, let's do a record like that. Why don't we make essentially a bedroom record? A living room vibe. And she's got this uh, idea for the record called Tapestry just to talk about the handcrafted feel of the record. She wasn't interested in following any trend. She was interested in making an intimate record. And I don't think she particularly cared if it was a big commercial success, but she felt like she wanted to get these songs out because she was very proud of them. This is the first time she'd written both the music and lyrics for all the songs on the record. Previously, she'd been working with a, a lot of collaborators, and she had collaborators here. Tony Stern. But she was involved in every step of this record in terms of how it sounded, to how the songs were going to be crafted, and then putting her voice up front. And that plain spokenness of that voice, who knew at the time that that was going to resonate? But people were ready for it. It was one of those voices that said, this person is, I can relate to this person. Yeah. Look at the way she looks on that album cover. She's wearing blue jeans. She's barefoot. There's no makeup on. You know, the light's coming in through the window. There's a cat there. I mean, <laughs> it's like your cool aunt, you know, in, yeah. you know hanging out with you. Yeah. And suddenly your older sister, well, you, you know? know? And we have to put ourselves in that period, Greg. The, the 60s uh, was such a period of experimentation. Look, it claimed uh, Jerry Goffin with too many psychedelic right. drugs, right? You know, that, that crystalline clarity that comes after the profound psychedelic experience where you are just like... I am one with the world, and, and I'm at peace. And, and you know, and nature and uh, all the craziness of the last couple of years, I'm really happy to just be barefoot in my backyard now with a guitar or, or the piano. I mean, that it, it epitomizes that vibe, and it came together, what, in three weeks? Yeah, three weeks. Apparently, the budget was a whopping $22,000. I mean, <laughs> it's incredible that this record was made at a time when the record industry was getting bigger Wow, it's incredible what they, what they were able to do. And I think that understatement is a huge part of this record's appeal. It, it's almost like you're in a room with this person and a couple of musicians who are very unobtrusive, but very, very cool in the way they, they accompanied her, and having a conversation with her, as opposed to being shouted at or being told what, what's, what's, what's what. Well, and everybody who was working with her, including Adler, the producer, and the musicians, are happy to give her the spotlight, which is, uh, which is just uh, inspiring. You know, they knew they were in the presence of greatness, and it was you shine. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, and I think about this record a lot in terms of what it was saying. I think she understood, obviously, the role of women in society. And, you know, it was the, the start of the feminist movement. And there was sort of like, you know, you had to be this or that. You had to fit into these boxes in popular culture and entertainment. And she fit into none of those boxes. You know, it was like she wasn't like anybody else. That song, Beautiful, where she sings, you've got to get up every morning with a smile on your face and show the world all the love in your heart. Then people gonna treat you better. You're gonna find, yes you will, that you're beautiful as you feel. And I think about that all the time because that is the woman's role. It's almost like you, in the middle of all this chaos, you have to be the steady hand. Mm. You have to pilot the ship here. And I think a lot of, 
I mean, I talk to my sister now about stuff like this, and it's like <laughs> we were relating to that stuff in a big way because we knew where we stood, yeah, and we yeah. knew that Carol was speaking our language. She well, understood what was going on. But there's also uh, an earthy sensuality. You know, I feel the earth move oh, under yeah. my feet. I feel the sky. Lusty, celebratory, empowered song about female sensuality, I think. Sure. But but still, she has self-doubts. You know, will you love me tomorrow? Uh, that's a good question. You know, and it all ends with you make me feel like a natural woman. Uh, that's the conclusion. So it's a tapestry of all of these emotions, of everything that's come. You know, it's got to be said. We should say it now. Carol King, uh, 28 at that point. She is 79 now. What a life. Well, absolutely. And I think when you think about songs like So Far Away and Home Again, home is a huge theme on this. What is home? home How do you make home, a home? Yeah. She left home. She made a new home. She, uh, you know, th- this whole a-, a, sense, a sense of rootlessness and the yearning for that, I think she tapped into something very primal in a lot of people at the time that they were in need of this sort of thing. The, you remember what the country was like in 1971. The Vietnam War was still going crazy. The feminist movement yeah. was was emerging. We had know, the Kent gay State, movement was the emerging. Chicago riots, yeah. the assassinations of of King and Malcolm X and and Robert F Kennedy. It, it, we were in a mess. Uh, we're going to dive deeper into tapestry with some of the people who made it in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week we are dissecting Carol King's masterful tapestry on its 50th anniversary. Before we get to some of our interviews with people who helped make that record, sorry, no, Carol doesn't do interviews. Greg, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the success and the uh, phenomenal, really, uh, accomplishments of that record? So despite the fact that it really didn't ride any trends at the time, I mean, the singer-songwriter thing would become a thing after this record came out. Yeah, yeah. But when it came out, nobody had any expectations for huge success. But it was an instant success. Billboard number one hit with It's Too Late. And then the album held the number one spot on the charts for 15 consecutive weeks. And lo and behold, it kept on selling. It remained on the charts for six years and sold over 25 million copies worldwide. And then at the Grammys, they lavished it. Album of the Year, Best Pop Vocal Performance, uh, Record of the Year, and also for Carol's Song of the Year for You've Got a Friend, first woman to win the Song of the Year award. So this this, uh, was not only a critically acclaimed record, it was a gigantic commercial success, and it continues to sell to this day. One of the best-selling albums of all time. Now we're going to talk to some of the creative and talented people who were integral to crafting Tapestry. Our first guest is songwriter and poet Tony Stern. Tony wrote the lyrics to one of the record's best songs, It's Too Late, and co-wrote lyrics to another fantastic track, now probably better known as the theme, to Gilmore Girls, Where You Lead. We're fortunate today to have Tony Stern as a guest to talk about her involvement with Tapestry. Tony, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Tony, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, tell us how you met Carol and how you started collaborating with her. Well, Tapestry was our third album. So I met Carol because I had sent a producer friend of mine four lyrics. 
I didn't know if they were lyrics or not. Um, he had always encouraged me to write lyrics because, well, because I was talkative and my generation was kind of breaking grounds in modern music. So I wrote four lyrics and I sent them to my friend Bert Schneider, who apparently put them in his desk. Carol came in from New York, having uh, recently separated from her lyricist husband, and she was looking for avenues you know, into the music business and had moved to Los Angeles. So according to the story that I, under as I understand it, was Bert took the lyrics and he handed them to Carol and she said, oh, these are good. Did you write them? And he said, no, my friend Tony Stern wrote them. So he set up a meeting and Carol and I met and hit it off. And then we worked together for the next five years. The interesting thing about my experience as a songwriter was I wasn't a songwriter until I sat down and wrote those four songs. It had never even occurred to me that I even knew how to construct a song, but apparently I had been listening as a music fan so closely that when they came out, they came out full blown as songs and Carol put music to all of them and they were covered. And then we just kept working for, you know, working as songwriters and then Carol started stepping out on her own. And through that, those efforts, Tapestry was born. My life has been a tapestry of rich and royal hue An everlasting vision of the ever-changing view So Carol started out working with her then-husband Jerry Goffin writing these big pop hits in the early 60s, and then she transitioned to being a solo artist. So what is your perspective on how Carol's songwriting evolved over that time? Well, there was not really such a thing as the singer-songwriter until Dylan came along and then Carol and James Taylor and Ricky Lee Jones and Joni Mitchell. And Carol, she was well, well-versed in music and she had her finger on the pulse, the contemporary pulse. So it was perfect. It was all a matter of evolution. So she evolved into a singer-songwriter and the intention of songwriters like Joni and James and Carol is to reveal themselves. So you really, when you listen to their great albums, you get a feeling that you know them. And I believe that was their intention. We've talked to several musicians who worked on Tapestry. Everybody just says Carol was special to work with. It was always like we were friends. And, and you know, everybody in L.A. calls each other a friend, right? No, no, Carol was warm and genuine, and you just wanted to, to you, were, you were happy to work with her, and, and it was always a pleasure. Well, I can certainly um, affirm that. You know, I had never worked with anybody before, and so I didn't know what other songwriters or what the music business was like. Carol and my relationship with her, I was shielded in many ways from the music business per se. But I I know we would get together, uh, getting the albums together before Tapestry, and we would be at uh, her house with the band or we would be in Screen Gems office and it was just warm and and no drama same thing in the studio when we're making Tapestry, no drama. Carol set the tone. She was prepared. I just learned recently that the recording was over in three weeks. I, I, I 
You know, I always wondered why I didn't spend more time in the studio when they were making tapestry. Well, that's the reason why it was only <laughs> took three weeks. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a marvelous atmosphere. You know, I'd be on the other side of the glass with Hank and Lou Adler and just watch these lovely looking young people uh, do their thing. What was the songwriting process like with Carol? I mean, would she come to you with the music or did you present the lyrics first? Um, I would say 99% plus I gave her the lyrics first. So I would craft the lyrics on legal pad. I would put the verses on the left side of the, the page, the chorus in the middle. And if there was a bridge, I'd kind of put it halfway in between. And I would want every comma, every, every piece of that lyric done so I was presenting her with something whole I think it was partially out of nervousness is do I even have the ability to call something up on the spot I'm so used to working alone so we both lived in Laurel Canyon and I had a little spinet piano and she had a grand piano and I would go to her house or she would come to mine and she would take that pad and she would put it on the piano stand and within an hour hour and a half at the most, she would have the melody and it would be so complete that it would have the riffs and the musical breaks and those hooks that you hear in It's Too Late especially, that was there. The process of writing those lyrics, was it something that gestated for weeks, months? I mean, uh, or what did it come instantly? I mean, what kind of creative space were you in when you were writing with Carol King? Well, it's amazing. Uh, to me, I wrote It's Too Late. I wrote it in 20 minutes. And it's too How do you explain It's Too Late was written in 20 minutes? I mean, that's amazing. But you know, they asked Picasso once. He had a, 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 a painting and he showed it to a client. And she said, oh, that's lovely. How long did it take you to paint it? And he said, my entire life. Mm. Yeah, 20 minutes plus your entire life. Exactly. Oh, yes, you know, I never, even t today, I never sit down and say, I'm going to write a song about this and that, or such and such. That's not my style. It's usually the first line that gets me going, and ultimately that first line disappears because the song or the poem is taken off in a different direction. But I do recall, and it's too late, stayed in bed all morning just to pass the time popped in my head, and then it just rolled out after. The big mistake that people make is that they think that that writing is autobiographical. Well, it is autobiographical because it comes out of the same person, but it is not autobiographical in terms of the story it tells. You know, there's so many people who think that It's Too Late is about this or that, 
or the other, and they're all wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I've they, seen quotes from you, Tony, and quotes from Carol. Doesn't give a lot of interviews where everybody thinks they know what the song is about, and it's like you don't have a clue. <laughs> right, because I, I know what the song is about. It's about what it says, and that's all I know about it. If you can tell your own truth, you have the possibility, the potential of touching many, many people. There'll be good times again for me and you. But we just can't stay together, don't you feel it too? Still, I'm glad for what we had and how I once loved you. You know, Where You Lead has introduced a, a whole new generation of fans to uh, Carol's music, uh, uh, being the theme song of the Gilmore Girls. If you're out So you've had to have the experience where it has ubiquitously been on in the background. Uh, what, what, what must that be like? Oh yeah, I wrote that. <laughs> well, I didn't even know it was the same song to the Gilmore Girls for a long time. And then when I heard and saw that it was, I wrote Warner Brothers a thank you letter. Thank you very much. And I said, don't thank us, thank Carol. <laughs> so I wrote Carol. You're not a big TV watcher, huh? <laughs> thank you very much. Well, I, I I get few channels up here. You know, I, ba I barely made it to have a phone available to have this lovely chat with you guys. While we're talking about the song, Tony, Carol was uh, apparently struggling with the song and came to you. Uh, I'm curious about how Carol approached you, if at all, for helping out on that particular track. Yes, she did. And it was the only time of all those lovely songs in uh, Tapestry that she did approach me and she needed a bridge. So I was lying on the couch at her house. I recall that. And uh, I just felt the song needed a little edge to it. So the bridge is edgier than the rest of the song. You know, I always wanted uh, a real home with flowers on the windowsill, but it was kind of that thing. So it, it, it took it and it gave it a little more of a, a, an edge. I always wanted a real home with flowers on the windowsill. But if you want to live in New York City, From just one man. But if anyone keep me happy, you're the one who can. So my big contribution was the bridge and then the rewrite of the words in the bridge that made it more appropriate for the mother-daughter relationship rather than a male-female relationship. Tony, tell me a little bit about the impact Tapestry has had on your life. You're in your early 20s, and all of a sudden, you've written and co-written two hit songs. Do you feel like this opportunity changed your life? Absolutely. I mean, the benefits, the material benefits that Tapestry brought to my life was that I could develop into the artist that I knew, that I, knew I wanted to be, and I still appreciate it as a tremendous luxury 
that when I go to work, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. And uh, that personal freedom that that has allowed me is, I, I can't even explain how wonderful that is. We have been talking to the lyricist, the poet, a key person in musical history as a contributor to Tapestry, Tony Stern. Tony, thank you for coming on Sound Opinions. It was my pleasure. I had fun. Thank you very much. Coming up, Jim and I talk with two of the prominent musicians who played on Tapestry, guitarist Danny Korchmar and drummer Russ Kunkel. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. So far. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week we are exploring the rich threads of tapestry as it reaches the half-century-old mark. Feeling old, Greg. Yeah. Next, we're talking with two musicians who played on the album and helped bring tapestry to life. Guitarist Danny Korchmar and drummer Russ Kunkel both have extremely impressive recording and live performance resumes. They've worked with people like James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown. The names go on and on. Their sonic contributions and chemistry with Carole King added layers of depth and warmth to the record. And what's great is that Danny and Russ are still friends, still collaborating today in a band with fellow prominent session musicians called The Immediate Family. Danny, Russ, welcome to Sound Opinions. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Russ, what was it like working with Carol King? Danny and I have uh, been fortunate enough to work with lots of incredibly great singer-songwriters, artists over the years. I mean, the list is just too big to even name. But I'll have to say this about Carol. Carol is a friend. And a lot of the people that I've worked with over the years, they were my boss or they were, you know, uh, you know, somebody I collaborated with. But Carol's a friend. Like if Danny or I called Carol and we needed something or we just wanted to talk, she would, she would call back in a heartbeat. And I, that's something I can't say about everybody else. You know, mm-hmm. she, she really has been a friend way more than an icon to, I think, to both of us all for, you know, our whole careers. Let's go into Tapestry because Adler had a very specific idea about how he wanted to approach that record, it sounded like. He had a, a sense of how he wanted Carol to sound and the atmosphere that he wanted to create around that. What, what was your take on that, Russ? Anytime you worked for Lou Adler, he took care of everyone on, in every single way. And he treated us all as equals. We weren't, we weren't employees, you know. And Lou's another person, I have to say, who's been a lifelong friend. But I just learned something the other day, a comment that Hank Sokola made, who engineered the record, that, uh, that Lou made it a point to keep the lights down in the control room so we weren't really aware of what was going on in there. So there was no randomity taking our attention away from what we were doing on the deck and playing. And I had forgotten that. Then they put lamps in there, kind of had this mellow living room kind of feel. The atmosphere, as far as the the studio and the control room, I would say was definitely controlled by Lou. But you know, the music, Lou is smart enough to know that if you have Carol King as an artist, you let her do what she does. Danny, how many songs were, were you uh, doing a day? I've read uh, two, three takes a day, and then, man, you know, boom, just knocking them out. 
Yeah, we were doing two or three songs a day. And uh, you got to remember, Carol is, is beyond being a brilliant, brilliant songwriter, is a, is a massively talented producer and arranger. And she knows exactly what she wants. She is a stone pro. She's not just somebody that's an artist that needs to be guided. She knows what she wants, and she's a brilliant arranger. And um, Lou set up an atmosphere, as Russ said, a great atmosphere for us. We had been rehearsing in her living room. So he went out of his way to make it as living room-like as possible. We got close together. Uh, the, the lights were turned down. As Russ pointed out, uh, Hank Sakaller was smart enough to turn the lights off in the studio. And so the atmosphere became uh, a very kind of homey uh, atmosphere. And it made us all very comfortable. It certainly made Carol comfortable. I've been thinking about for a while over this past month, the power of this body of work comes from something very simple, the songs. The songs on Tapestry are so incredible that that's where the power is, you know, and, and Carol's ability to be able to perform those songs in a way that it communicated so easily, one, to women, two, to everyone, her singing those songs, kind of like your sister would sing a song sitting next to you playing the guitar, it, it connected with women, and it connected mm. with young artists, and it made them feel, God, if Carol can do this, I can do it. You know, and I think I think it spawned a whole a whole new generation of female singer songwriters. Carol King gave so many women the right and to, to go ahead and and pursue their dreams of being a songwriter, or a singer, or a performer. Carol and James as well have always been political activists, so there's been discussion as we, we look at the uh, anniversary of this album's release about uh, was it considered, was it perceived political a a at the time? Um, and Carol generally, uh, in the few interviews she deigns to give, she doesn't talk much, she lets the work speak, generally says, I wasn't thinking politically. But I've seen quotes from both of you where, where yeah, you know, it, it was political for a woman to be uh, talking about family and friendship and loyalty and trust uh, and giving other women a sense of empowerment. All these years later, what is your perspective, each of you, on that? Well, I'd have to say that none of us thought that way when we were making the album. Mm -hmm. It was like, here are the songs. This is a great song. How, what am I going to play on this? How am I going to figure it out? In other words, we don't think in terms of movements. We don't think politically when we're, when we're recording or making music. We think about what's the best thing for the song, how to make good music together. Uh, yeah. It's the critics and writers that come up with all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. we got to do something, man. I mean, you know. <laughs> I think Tapestry was way more of a social statement than a political statement. It was, it, was, it was a social statement about the times and about how things were... It was certainly a statement about how things were changing in Carol's life. And yeah. like, if you listen to the song Home Again, the first time I heard that, I went, wow, for all, for all the years that I, Danny and I have spent on the road, I can relate to that song. Sometimes I wonder if I'm ever gonna make 
again It's so far and out of sight I really need someone to talk to And nobody else knows how to comfort me tonight What does having a, a super successful album like Tapestry do to your resume or CV? For the rest of your career, are, are, are people calling you up, sussing out uh, if you're the right person to contribute to their sessions, saying, give me a little of that tapestry thing? <laughs> or... Well, I'd have to say that uh, one of the great benefits of playing on tapestry was that uh, Lou Adler put all our names on the record. Yeah. And now this is something that's a big j- uh, change. Peter Asher and Lou Adler were, I think, the first guys to put the names of the session players on the records. Previous to that, as you guys probably know, like the Wrecking Crew, the guys who played on all those Phil Spector records in, in, in L.A., never had their names on the records. Yeah. yeah. So the fact of us having our names on these very popular big hit albums gave us a tremendous boost, gave all of us, Russ and me and, and Leland, a tremendous boost and a tremendous um, entree into doing sessions and playing with more artists. say that she was really great about her arrangement ideas were almost implied in even the, the, the stripped down demos that she did like she had a full sense of what the song was going to sound like even in even in its stripped down form I, I just wondered if you guys had any evidence of that from working well it all came from the, her piano part mm-hmm. and uh, you know Lou knew that that was going to be the focus of the album so it was her piano part and then working backwards from there as far as what I was playing on it it was based entirely on what she was doing and how to work either with it or around it or against it. But definitely that was the main, that's what propelled all the songs for sure. You know, I have to say that it was quite a while ago, but you know, when you're on the floor with Carol and you're doing a song with her, you just, you just, you know, open the gates and go. You know, I don't remember any preconceived idea of, uh, of what to do on that. I know, I know for sure that if I was doing something Carol didn't like, she would very nicely let me know, you know, to change it. <laughs> Don't do that anymore, right? Yeah, I mean that. She was, she was yeah, always, yeah. she was, she would yeah. say it with a smile, and but she wouldn't, she wouldn't leave it ambiguous. She would, she would be very specific about what she wanted. I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. I feel my heart start to tremble Let's talk about the tunes. Uh, each of you uh, must must have one that sticks out. Russ, is there one that you you know that every time you hear it, uh, all these years later, makes you smile, makes you proud to have played on it? That, that okay. you love? well, uh, probably you've got a friend. Yeah, I mean, and it's why? just I mean, there's so many great songs, but that 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 song just touched so many you know trigger points for so many people, you know. And I mean, to the point where James stole it and recorded it before Carol. Exactly. You just call up my name, and you know wherever 
come running Oh yeah, baby To see you again well, and, and you, Danny, were making that point earlier that that, cat, that was Carol. She was your friend, not not your boss, not a star you were collaborating with. Was there a track that stood out for you, Danny? Well, like Russ said, You Got a Friend is pretty heavy duty. I mean, we went out on tour uh, 10 or 11 years ago, the Troubadour reunion tour with James and Carol, and we were playing these massive arenas in the round, and there were people sitting right on the stage, right next to the stage. They had set it up. Uh, so that there were people like literally five feet away from from us. So we played that song, You Got a Friend, and we're, we're out there. It's, it was an incredible experience. I laughed my head off because of how delighted I was to see people just loving each other, to see moms and daughters, you know, holding each other, couples, mm. people in tears. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. That's the power of, of music and certainly the power of that song. Well, we have been talking to uh, Danny Korchmar and Russ Kunkel. They played on Tapestry. They've done a million other things. Thank you for giving us the time, fellas. Our pleasure. Thanks, guys, so much. You know, Greg, the enduring influence of Carol King, I have lots of thoughts about it, but there are uh, signposts along the way. It seems like every generation was welcome to uh, rediscover this artist. In 1995, we have Tapestry Revisited, a tribute to Carol King. Not my favorite record, Rod Stewart and Celine Dion covering her in the middle of the yeah, alternative right. age, but people are discovering her uh, through that record. In 2013, beautiful, the Carol King musical opens in San Francisco and then goes to Broadway, mm-hmm. and a whole new uh, generation of Broadway musical theater people, right? But I I want to go back to, uh, in particular, Gilmore Girls. It's great. So really smart and heartwarming show. The showrunners had approached Carol King, Can We Use Where You Lead as our theme song? And uh, she just wanted to do a new version of the tune, you know, with her daughter, Louise Goffin, uh, who is a great musician and, and singer herself. So they do it as a duet, and, it, and the themes that uh, Carol had always intended of female solidarity, of mother and daughter, of friendship, of strength uh, between women who love each other really came to the fore, and a whole new generation discovers her, and she plays the owner of a music store. (laughs) Does a bit part, which is just fantastic. And I will argue even more, and this is where you get to scoff, Professor Cott, (laughs) um, Carole King is, is pretty darn punk. I, I don't disagree with that at all because she she made up her own rules. She made up her own rules, and she was not going to play to the sexist standards of the music industry. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, no makeup. You know, a yeah. natural woman wearing jeans, not posing, not pretending, uh, certainly not using any auto-tune, right? Yeah. She was pitch perfect on the piano, but her voice was her voice. And the courage to not pretend to be something the hit factory wanted, but to just be herself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a heck of a legacy to uh, give to any young musician to follow. Yeah, being yourself, I think, was, for me, the key message that resonates through the decades. Even if artists don't particularly sound like Carole King, they take cues from her ability to sort of say, I can be an independent person, I can be myself and own that. You know, the combination of being both vulnerable and confident 
You know, that's a unique one. And I think she projected that on this record, that sense of independence. You know, so I hear her in everything from something like Liz Fair's girly sound tapes, mm-hmm. you know. And it's harder to be friends than lovers. But you shouldn't try to mix the two. Cause if you do, then you're still unhappy. And you know that the problem is you. I hear her in the neo-soul movement, India Ari or Lauren Hill. I hear her in somebody like Rufus Wainwright. Yeah. I hear her in somebody like the McGarrigal sisters. Tori Amos. Never was a cornflake girl. Thought that was a good solution. Hanging with the raisin girls. She's gone to the other side. Giving us a yo-yo. Tori Amos, the roaches, you know. Mary Chapin Carpenter. I mean, these singers, I think, took a lot from her. And it's like, you could sing about your life in a way that wasn't weird or over... You know, people talk about confessional. I don't really think of her as confessional. I think it was more about real, like relatable. Like, I'm not saying, you know, playing it for pathos or self-pity or, gee, I'm so depressed or whatever. It was more about just, this is my life. Yeah. And I'm giving it to you kind of straight without any BS attached. Well, and, it, and, and people you, like that. You know, this is my life. It's a real life. And you are all living lives, and you may relate to something right, I'm singing right, about. Exactly. And that's the universality, which makes this album musically, lyrically, and attitudinally sound as fresh today as it did the day it came out. That wraps up our discussion of Carol King's Tapestry. And now we want to hear from you, our listeners. What's your favorite track? What's the album mean to you? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a great doubleheader for you. Uh, Donnie Walton, who has uh, written one of the best musical novels either one of us have ever read. Ever read, yeah. And uh, the great Mary Clayton. Gimme Shelter just tells you the beginning of what an amazing story this vocalist has had. And don't forget to check out our podcast-only bonus episode available wherever you get your podcasts. Indeed. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Katie Cott.